The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. One of the things we're doing today is uh, about three years ago, our staff team went to New York City. Four years ago, was it? Went to New York City. And uh, while we were there, we saw the great needs of the city. And Stephen and Julia have been prayerfully engaged if the Lord would have them participate in doing ministry there. So uh, this morning we announced to you, we have been planning this for quite a while. It's been in the planning stages for uh, at least the last year. Uh, Stephen and Julia will be leaving us sometime after the first of the year. We are launching them into New York City, the upper west side of Manhattan, where they'll be involved in church planning. So the scriptures tell us to send our best. We're going to send our best. And uh, there are a couple of couples headed there with them, and uh, we'll hear from them a little later. But it's really with uh, great joy that we announce and uh, send and support them. So uh, later on in the year, sometime August, September, uh, we'll have them back up here to present Well to Be Gone to raise some funds for that. And then after the first of the year, we launch them. We're grateful for uh, many, many years of ministry together. And uh, this is one of those times it's bittersweet in some ways. But it's a delight when you can do that the right way, when you can launch someone rather than uh, someone splitting off or something else. This is us sending them, us being behind them, us saying, uh, to God be the glory. There's tremendous work to be done there, and uh, so we launched them. Would you uh, welcome Stephen back to the stage up here. Bless you, brother. You know, I, I remember uh, back in 1998, uh, Julia and I had just got married. We'd been married for about six weeks, maybe seven weeks, and uh, it was uh, we were about to leave England to go to this strange place we'd never heard of before, Temple, Texas, to do an internship here. We didn't know anything about Temple. We just looked at it on the map, and we saw that it was south of Waco. We'd heard of Waco. And, uh, and I remember two in the morning, Julia and I just lying awake, and there's a night or two before we left, and we're saying, what are we doing? Well, why are we leaving everyone we know and love or our friends and family behind to go to this place where we don't know anyone? What are, what are we doing this for? Little did we realize we would end up uh, making lifelong friends here, that we would find a family here, and we would end up learning more about life and ministry from you guys than anywhere else. And for that, we are, we're, we're really grateful. Um, and so... You know, it's the last few weeks we we now find ourselves lying awake at night, two in the morning, and saying, what are we doing? (laughs) We're leaving everyone we know and love, all our friends and family. But uh, we're we're compelled by the the need that is up there in in the secular northeast. Uh, They say that it's only 3% of New Yorkers uh, believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's aggressively secular and, and getting more so. And it's that need that compels us. So we'd, we'd cover your prayers for us in, in the coming weeks and months as we prepare to go and uh, as, as we try to start and join the people there who are already announcing the gospel in New York. Well, let's continue our series this morning. If you have your Bibles, we're going to go to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Ecclesiastes chapter 8. And we're going to begin reading at verse 9. All this I saw as I applied my mind to everything done under the sun. There is a time when a man lords it over others to his own hurt. Then, too, I saw the wicked buried, those who used to come and go from the holy place and receive praise in the city where they did this. This, too, is meaningless. 
then the sentence for a crime is not, when a sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, the hearts of the people are filled with schemes to do wrong. Although a wicked man commits a hundred crimes and still lives a long time, I know that it will go better with God-fearing men who are reverent before God. Yet because the wicked do not fear God, it will not go well with them and their days will not lengthen like a shadow. There is something else meaningless that occurs on earth. Righteous men who get what the wicked deserve and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve, this too, I say, is meaningless. So I commend the enjoyment of life because nothing is better for a man under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. Then joy will accompany in, him, in his work at all the days of the life God has given him under the sun. When I applied my mind to know wisdom and to observe man's labor on earth, his eyes not seeing sleep day or night, then I saw all that God had done. No one has, can comprehend what, God, what goes on under the sun. Despite all his efforts to search it out, man cannot discover its meaning. Even if a wise man claims he knows, he cannot really comprehend it. Let's, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for this, uh, this uh, wisdom literature that was written um, millennia ago. We're grateful that it, uh, it still speaks to us today. Um, Father, we pray that you would speak your truth through this Ecclesiastes into, into our hearts and make us look more like Jesus. pray this in his name and to your glory. Amen. So uh, a couple of weeks ago I was talking to a, a friend of mine who thinks that Christians are, what's the word? Oh yeah, idiots. And uh, I've, got, I've got a few of those friends actually. I, I, I hope it's not because they hang around me that they think that, yeah. <laughs> but but they, he, he thinks that Christians settle for simplistic thinking. He thinks they just settle for easy answers. He says it doesn't matter how, how badly thought out a particular idea is. If it makes life easy to understand, makes things simple, then Christians will just buy in. They'll just buy in. Maybe you've heard this sort of thing from friends and family or relatives. Or maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, yes, that's right. That's exactly what I think about all of this. Uh, religion is for people who want to dumb down reality. Christianity is for people who want to coast through life with their brains switched off. It's for people who want to reduce life to some sort of scientific formula, some easy formulaic approach to life. That, that's that's what it's for. Now, you may not say it out loud very often because you're not rude. You don't want to offend people. You're very polite. But essentially for you, that's, that's what, that's what you, you feel. On the other hand, you may be sitting here this morning scratching your head saying, who, who says this? I've never heard that. Where are you hearing this? If, if that's the case, I want to encourage you to, to go out and make friends with people who do not think like you and do not believe like you. Or... Maybe all you need to do is to create some space for the friends you already have to be able to say this sort of thing. Here's something you can take away, and we haven't even got started yet, okay? But right at the front end, here's something you can take home. It is our responsibility as Christians, if you're a Jesus follower here this morning, it is our responsibility to create this space for our friends to say this sort of stuff. Invite your friends to speak their minds about the church, about God, about Christianity, about Jesus, about the Bible. And if they're still being hopelessly polite about all of this, then, then help them out. Say it for them. Give, give voice to their thoughts. And I guarantee you that the conversation will get a lot more interesting. It won't be as polite. It won't be as genteel. But it will certainly be a lot more interesting. 
Anyway, um, I was talking to, it's just a couple of weeks, less than a couple of weeks ago, talking to this friend who thinks that Christians are idiots, and, and he was telling me how he had recently been on a tour of, wait for it, Liberty University. Now, yeah, some of you already know, for those of you who don't know about Liberty, Liberty is a, a huge Christian university, very influential. I've, I've got good friends who have been there and been blessed through that, that ministry. And it was established by Jerry Falwell. Uh, Jerry Falwell was a TV evangelist slash um, um, political leader as, as well. And uh, so for those of you who already know about Falwell and Liberty, then, then you're already asking the same question I was asking. What on earth does a guy who thinks Christians are idiots, and how does he end up on a tour of Liberty campus, right? What's he, what's he doing there? Which is a good question. Um, it's a long, complicated story, and it's, it's really best not to, to ask. But, but he, he ends up on this tour, and he said there were two things that stood out to him on this tour. The first thing was the number of times that the, the tour guide, in their group, took, taking this group around, the tour guide used the phrase biblical principles. He used it over and over. He said this school was founded on biblical principles. This education system is rooted in biblical principles. This university is built over and over. It was his favorite thing to say. He said the second thing that stood out to him was the way that the school had memorialized Jerry Falwell himself since, since his passing. He, he said that they'd, they'd turned his office into a kind of a museum. They'd frozen it in time, left everything as it was right before he died. His, they've got his portrait up. They buried him on campus, so his, his, they showed him the graveside as well. And, and he said, you know, it's the sort of thing you do for a dictator, which, you know, like I said, it's, it's not as polite, the conversation, but this is what happens when people get, get honest. Um, and so those are the two things that stood out to him. The number of times they, they use the phrase biblical principles and the, number of time, and the way they'd memorialized Jerry Falwell. You know, it's, it's, it's really unfortunate that when 9-11 happened, um, Jerry Falwell said, I point a finger at the gays and the lesbians and the abortionists and the people who have tolerated this sort of thing in America because you, are, you have to shoulder some of the responsibility for this 9-11 thing. This is... This is this is partly your fault. Now, I know, I know that that's not Jerry Falwell's only contribution to the life in America. I get that. But unfortunately, when a prominent leader says this sort of thing, the media, the media picks up on it, and it repeats it, and it multiplies it, and it makes sure that we remember it. I mean, they, they won't let it go. They make sure that we remember it. Is that fair? Is that fair? I don't know about fair, but that's just what happens. That's the way it works. And then the rest of us have to live with the consequences of it. So that when the, church looks, when the world looks at the church and a, an unbeliever looks at a believer and says things like, oh, you, you, you like easy answers. Oh, you, you, you settle for simplistic thinking. You want to dumb down reality. You want to reduce life to an easy scientific formula. You want an easy formulaic approach to life. This is one example of, amongst many of the sort of thing that they are thinking about. So my friend is on this tour, and he sees Falwell's portrait looking down at him, and, and, he, and he hears the phrase biblical principles, and, and they show him Falwell's graveside, and he hears the phrase biblical principles, and then they show him Falwell's office, and he hears the phrase biblical principles, and he's putting these two things together. They're synonymous in his head, and he says... Oh, well, this is, of course, one of the reasons why I think that Christianity is just bunk. I mean, it's just utter nonsense. Polite translation, right? Polite translation of what he actually said. So why am I telling you about my friend who thinks that Christians are idiots and his tour of, of uh, the campus at, at Liberty? There's a couple of ways this is going to tie into our passage this morning. 
First of all, if you're a Christian here, I want to underline what I said before. I'm going to put it in slightly different words. It is our responsibility as Jesus followers to be sensitive to, to be conscious of the prejudice through which we are heard. It is our responsibility as believers to be conscious of, to be sensitive to, to understand, to come to terms with the prejudice through which we are heard. Because if we don't, it is going to become increasingly difficult for us to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ to this culture, to this generation, and the generation that is coming up. Because, you know, sometimes the culture can't hear anything we're saying. Words are coming out of our mouth, but they're not hearing us because everything we're saying is being filtered through this, this, this other stuff, through this prejudice. You guys settle for simplistic ideas. You, you guys want a dumbed-down reality. You want a formulaic approach to life. You like easy answers. It's being filtered through all of that. And you may be sitting there, cross, fo- arms, arms folded, like, that's not me. I'm not like that. I'm just not like that. That's not fair. Well, no, that's why they call it prejudice, right? That's why they call it prejudice. There's nothing fair about it. But it's our responsibility to come to terms with the prejudice through which we are heard so that you and I can be better communicators of the gospel of Jesus Christ to our culture. Second group of people here, some of you are sitting here this morning and and you reject God, you reject Jesus, you reject the Bible, you reject Christianity, you reject the church, you'd like to reject the church if it wasn't for those pesky Christians dragging you along every Sunday, right? And the reason why you do this is because you don't want to dumb down reality. You don't want to do it. You don't want to join the unthinking hordes. You don't want to be one of those idiots who settles for simple, uh, simplistic formulas and easy answers to life. In fact, you actually feel it's part of your moral responsibility to resist Christianity because you want, to, you want to resist the flattening out of reality and that formulaic approach to life. If that is you this morning, I, I, want, I want you to know this. You may actually be far more closely aligned with Scripture than you ever thought possible. You, you may actually be far more closely aligned with Scripture than you ever imagined. In fact... It may be the case, in some respects, that you are far more closely allied with the Bible, with the narrative world of the Bible, with Scripture, than some of your Christian friends. Shh, don't tell them I told you that. But seriously, I'm not kidding. You may be more closely allied in some respects with the Bible than some of your Christian friends. And, And here's why. Because the Bible itself resists precisely that flattening out of reality, that dumbing down of reality, those easy answers, at least as fiercely as, no, more fiercely than you do. The Bible does it. What we're going to see in a moment is that Jesus does it. He does this on purpose. He does it very pointedly, deliberately. And what we'll see is the passage we're looking at this morning in Ecclesiastes is no exception because this is what Ecclesiastes says. All this I saw as I applied my mind to everything done under the sun. There is a time when a man lords it over others to his own hurt. Okay, then, that's good. There's a formula there. If I'm wicked and I lord my power over people, it's going to come back and bite me in the neck. Okay, it's just going to, it's going to come back on me. I'm going to get hurt. But then again, he says this. Then, too, I saw the wicked buried, those who used to come and go from the holy place and receive praise in the city where they did this. This, too, is meaningless. Now, Understand that right here, he's, he's not being buried is, is not a, uh, a, a bad thing. In the Jewish mind, this is a positive thing. It means that he, lived in, he died an honorable death. He was buried with honors in the very place where he had been wicked and receiving praise while he was being wicked, while he was alive. 
So, so let me get this straight. If I'm wicked and I lord my power over people, it will come back and get me. But then again, if I'm wicked, um, I might uh, receive praise and, and receive an honorable burial. What? Although a wicked person who commits a hundred crimes may live a long time, I can commit a hundred crimes, live a long time. I know that it will go better with those who fear God, who are reverent before him. Yet because the wicked do not fear God, it will not go well with them, and their days will not lengthen like a shadow. So if I am wicked, I could live a long time, but then again, I might not. You following this? There is something else meaningless that occurs on earth. The righteous who get what the wicked deserve, and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve. Look, let me just sum up this passage for us like this. Is the wicked will get hurt. It won't go well with them. Their days will not be lengthened. That's what it says. It also says the wicked will receive praise and honorable burial. They might live a long time. They will get what the righteous deserve. Apparently, my friend, who thinks that Christians want a simple, scientific, formulaic approach to life, a dumbing down of reality, the easy answers, that friend and Jerry Falwell had not spent too much time in Ecclesiastes, because if they had, they would see that Ecclesiastes resists precisely that kind of flattening out of reality and that formulaic approach to life, and not only resists it, but encourages us, or discourages us from doing the same. This is the the reality that Ecclesiastes points us to, and I just want to hit the pause button there because I know that there will be some people who will push back here for a moment and say, no, 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 wait, 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 wait. Haven't you seen the phrase appear in Ecclesiastes under the sun? How many times has that appeared so far in Ecclesiastes? Does anyone know? No? I haven't counted it either. I was just hoping one of you had. Okay. So... So that's appeared a lot of times, right? Under the sun. That's what it says. And so metaphorically speaking, it's this idea that God is beyond the sun. We're beneath the sun. And so this is a look at life without God. So this is, Solomon is in a very dark place here. He, he's, he's confused. That's why there's this confusion. It's a darkened look at the world. It's a twisted view of reality. It's a warped view of life. Of course he's a little confused. You can't take this too literally, too factually. Well, okay then. If that's the case, why does the... Uh, most renowned successor, the, the, the preeminent successor of the wisdom literature, agree wholeheartedly with what Ecclesiastes is saying right here. I'm talking about Jesus himself. Here's what Jesus says. He says, He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. The, the, the general observation he's making here, look, Good and bad things happen to bad people. Good and bad things happen to evil people. There's no simple formula here. There's no easy answer here. You can't figure this out like some equation. It can't be done. That's the general observation Jesus makes. And then he gets even more specific. Uh, He says, this is in Luke chapter 13, he says, Now there were some present at the time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? All those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? And the answer is no, of course not. Don't be so simplistic. Don't dumb down reality. There's no formula here. Whether it's the Tower of Siloam that fell in Jerusalem back then or the Twin Towers that fell in New York on 9-11, Don't think to yourself that you're more righteous than those people or this is because of someone else's sin. Actually, what Jesus says here is look at your own heart, recognize your own sin, repent of your own sin, recognize the complicated web of sin that we're all entangled in. 
do you, do you remember Job? Do you remember Job? And um, he loses everything, right? His, his family, his health, his wealth. One calamity strikes him after another. One after another. He's left in sackcloth and ashes and he's in the, sitting in the dust. And his, Job's friends come to him. Sometimes they're known as Job's comforters. Job's comforters, right? And at first they're lost for words and they sit in silence for days on end. I mean, they just sit in silence and he's mourning. They have nothing to say. He has nothing to say. He's too hurt, too wounded, too bitter, too angry, too sad, too lost, too devastated to say, what's he going to say? And how's he going to say? How's he going to put it into words? And so they sit in silence for days on end. And you know Job's comforters were doing great. They were doing great right up until the time, the moment they opened their mouths and then it all fell apart on them. Because this is where they started to come, try to come up with a reason for all of this. And, and they wanted to apply this formula to his life. And this was it. They said, you were righteous, so you were blessed. You're righteous, so you were blessed. You've sinned, so now you're cursed. No, 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 Job says, I, I haven't. There's not some big secret sin. My character hasn't changed. Still the same man, still the same character. No, be quiet, Job. We know that you've sinned. There's, you're hiding something. Be honest, fess up. You've sinned, so you're cursed. You repent, and then the curse will be, you'll be blessed again. Job's comforters had lived with this formula for all their lives. And so when they saw Job in his devastation, they couldn't help themselves. They just had to wrap their simple formula and easy answers around his pain and around Job's suffering. And Jesus had read Job, and Jesus had read Ecclesiastes, and Jesus stands in the wisdom tradition, which is why Jesus can say, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Knowing full well that sometimes the righteous, the truly righteous, get crucified. You see, this is not a warped view of the world. This is a clear-eyed view of a warped world. A world where sometimes good character counts for nothing. A world, a warped world, where sometimes disease and disaster strike indiscriminately. A warped world where sometimes goodness and kindness and, and gentleness are, are are rewarded with unkindness and cruelty and evil and hatred. This is not a warped view of the world. This is a clear-eyed view of a warped and fallen world where nothing is as it should be. How, how, do we, how does this happen where the Bible gets so misrepresented that, I've, that we, we end up hearing this, this from people outside the church who say, well, pfft, you guys settle for easy answers. You, you dumb down reality. You want simplistic thinking. How does that happen. Look, I tell you, I've done it. I've done it to the, I've represented, misrepresented the Bible that way. I've sometimes reduced my faith. Let me just confess here. I've sometimes reduced my faith to, to a, a slogan that I can put on a bumper sticker. I've done that. I've sometimes reduced my faith. I've reduced scripture to nothing more than a book of easy answers and simple formula. I've done that. How does, how does that happen? It's obviously not that, but how does that happen? Well, I think it has something to do with the way that we read. Now, don't get me wrong, there's huge emotional reasons for this, and I'm going to address that, and we're going to get to that in just a moment. But right now, I want to address our reading habits, the way that we read. So for those of you who are interested in reading the Bible for all it's worth, this is for you. Um, the rest of you, if you're not interested, you can tune out for two minutes, okay? You've got 120 seconds you can tune out for, okay? For the rest of you, you, you know the Bible is filled with so many different types of literature, 
that there's, wis- there's wisdom literature, there is there's poetry, there's, there's music, there's songs, there's history, there's prose, there's high prose, there, there, there are letters, there's apocalyptic literature, there's prophetic literature, there's so many different types of literature in this one book in the Bible. What you don't want to do, each one of these types of literature demands that we, that we read them differently. So, in other words, what you don't want to do is read the Psalms the same way that you would read one of the Apostle Paul's letters. And you don't want to read one of Paul's letters the same way that you would read the wisdom literature. So, Ecclesiastes and Job and Proverbs, these belong to a category, a literary genre called wisdom. It's the wisdom tradition, the wisdom literature. We've already referenced it several times. And and so what I want to do is just give you a tip on how to read read the wisdom literature. Okay, so... What you may want to do when you're reading Ecclesiastes, you're reading through Proverbs, and it's about to expound on a new idea or present a new concept, what you may want to do is right at the front end, or at the end of the sentence maybe, put the word sometimes, sometimes, or oftentimes, or most of the time, or generally speaking. Any one of those phrases will do. Um, Here's what uh, Ecclesiastes actually encourages us to do. Uh, In verse 9, it says, There is a time when a man lords it over others to his own hurt. There is a time. Not every time, not all the time, but sometimes. And we can do this all the way through, because I've I've inserted the word sometimes here. Although a wicked person who commits a hundred crimes may sometimes live a long time, sometimes their days will not lengthen like a shadow. Sometimes the righteous get what the wicked deserve, and sometimes the wicked get what the righteous deserve, sometimes. Now, uh, some, some people will ask, well, wait, wait a second, and I have been asked this, wait a second, does this mean we can just go around putting sometimes in anywhere we feel like in Scripture? Is, is that it? Isn't this the top of a slippery slope into relativism, make Scripture all very convenient when we want to? Uh, in other words, when, when the Apostle Paul says something like, husbands, love your wives. Uh, as Christ loved the church, giving himself up for her, sometimes. Right? When Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, is that sometimes? No. Different literary genre. That's not sometimes. That's all the time. Right? When, when the commandment says, thou shalt not commit adultery, sometimes. No. Thou shalt not murder, sometimes. When the Apostle Paul says, when the Apostle Paul says, do not consider others do not consider yourself better than, more highly than you ought, but consider others ahead of yourself. Sometimes, but the rest of the time, consider yourself and forget about everyone else. No, it's not sometimes, it's all the time. Different literary genre. Where, but right here, so there is no sometimes. It's, that's all the time. But what we're looking at here is the wisdom literature. And, and that, what the wisdom literature does is, is it describes different situations which are different pictures which are situational, which are circumstantial, which are sometimes or oftentimes, or or generally speaking, and then we're invited to consider life, what we're seeing in front of us in the light of that. In the light of that. Look, if if we don't do this with the wisdom literature, if if we turn it into a book of easy answers and and kind of use it as a scientific formula and, and a simple approach to life, then I'll tell you where it ends up. It ends up in condemnation. It ends up in condemnation. You end up condemning yourself, you end up condemning the people around you, and in the end you end up condemning God. Let me show you why. Proverbs, part of the wisdom tradition, right? It says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old he will not depart from it. Now, now look, if you understand this, it's saying, generally speaking, if you train, most of the time if you train a child in the way he should go, generally speaking, they will not depart from it. You're you're fine. But if you turn this into a formula for child-rearing, if you turn this into a formula, 
you're gonna, it's going to end up, I know people who have loved their kids well, who have who've trained their kids in the way they should go, and you know what? They've ended up in a completely different direction. And, and if you turn this into a formula, what, what's going to happen is you're going to end up condemning yourself as a bad parent or condemning your spouse as a bad parent, and then you end up condemning God for not coming through for you. A friend of mine is still haunted by the specter of one of his, um, one of his patients, his doctor and one of his patients who came into his office and he had to break the news to them that they had cancer. This wasn't the first time he'd done this. He'd done this. It's always a difficult thing, but he'd done this many times before. He had to do it again after that. But on this particular occasion, it was a woman's response that troubled him the most. She said, there's no way that can be true. There's no way because I'm a Christian woman. I read my Bible. I follow Jesus. There is no way that God would ever allow that to happen to me. And the reason why he's haunted by that is because she died with her faith in tatters. She lost her faith. And she died that way. And, um, and so if you take a verse like verse 12 here, part of verse 12, which says, which says it will go better for those who fear the Lord. And if you turn that into a formula and a promise and a guarantee and an easy answer, then whether it be cancer whether it be crucifixion, these things can only ever be a betrayal. And I think, talking of cancer and crucifixion, I, I think this brings us to the emotional drive behind all this. And this, this, is, this is the emotional drive, the thing that drives us emotionally to read this way, to think this way, to look at life, approach life this way. And, and it ultimately comes down to control, and it comes down to vulnerability. Control and vulnerability, we don't want to be vulnerable, we want to be in control. The more control we have, the less vulnerable we feel, right? And and the less control we have, the more vulnerable we feel. And I think one of the disturbing things about Ecclesiastes, and it is a disturbing experience, if you've never read through this book from cover to cover, I encourage you to go home and do that this afternoon. Reading Ecclesiastes is a disturbing experience, let's just acknowledge that. And one of the things that makes reading this book such a disturbing experience is is because it dispels any sense of control that we think we have over life and it exposes our vulnerability. The the safe canopy is blown off and, and we're left vulnerable, exposed and defenseless. And it doesn't just do this once and it doesn't just do this twice. Ecclesiastes is relentless. The author wants us to know, Solomon wants us to know that our, our sense of control is an illusion. It is a delusion. And our vulnerability, that's reality. Our control is an illusion. Our vulnerability, that is real. That's real. Now, I know that there are all sorts of ways that you and I will try and take control and escape our vulnerability. How do you do that? Right here in Ecclesiastes, he pushes back in this particular passage on those who use work as a way of controlling their environment and life. And some people think if they work every hour God sends, and then some, where they're consumed with work, they think when they're not at work, they're thinking about work. That's all they do. He pushes back on that, and he says... So I commend the enjoyment of life because there is nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. Then joy will accompany them in their toil, in their work, all the days of the life God has given them under the sun. He's throughout Ecclesiastes in chapter 2 and chapter 3, he's been pushing for this balance between this enjoyment, this leisure, and this work. And the reason why he does that is he's saying, look, 
accept your vulnerability. Don't, don't think you've got things under control. How do you try to gain control? How, how do you try to gain control and, and escape your vulnerability? Is it work? Is it work? Are you one of those, those people? Maybe for you it's a little simpler. We've talked about this before, but maybe it's, for you it's um, you sheer brute force. In, in the playground, you threw your weight around as a kid, and as an adult, you haven't changed. You still use your physicality to intimidate people uh, and to control people, to control your environment. Maybe you're one of those men who dares to control your wife that way. Maybe for you, it's your personality. And you use your personality to manipulate those around you, to control those around you, and you create these little cliques, and you exclude other people, and you marginalize them, and you leave people out. And you know deep inside that there's no way that healthy, loving relationships can thrive in that environment. You know this. And all of your relationships are reducible to an attempt to control your environment and escape your vulnerability. Or, or maybe right now you're, you're embroiled in, a, in an attempt to, to control life and you're competing to do this with the people closest to you, maybe your own spouse. And as you circle each other warily, as you circle each other warily, as you wait for them to make their next move and and afraid they're going to get the upper hand and making sure they don't get one over on you, you can feel yourself getting smaller and pettier and more tiny-souled than ever before. You, You know it's happening because the more you try and control and escape your vulnerability and control and claw your way up, the the further down you fall into that pit, to that hole. And, and as you look at your uh, different attempts to control, you know it's ugly. You don't need me this morning to stand up here and tell you it's ugly. You know it. If you bring it into the light of the gospel, you know that it's ugly as you bring it into the light. You don't need me to tell you that, but you keep on doing it. And one of the reasons why we do this is because somewhere along the way, we have bought into a lie, a satanic illusion that we can control it and that we can escape our vulnerability. And this is why Ecclesiastes keeps casting the shadow of death over all of us. Just keeps casting the shadow of death so that dispel that sense of control and help us see our vulnerability is real. And it is precisely to this lack of control, this, this vulnerability that Jesus speaks when he says... He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. I want to give you the context for this and then we're going to finish. Okay? Here's the, the rest of the verses surrounding this. Because as Jesus highlights, dispels our sense of control, highlights our vul- exposes our vulnerability, there's a response that he calls us to. And, and it's actually in the context of, of this verse. You've heard it said... Love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, there's no easy answers here. Sorry to disappoint you. There's no easy answers here. Unless, of course, you think that loving your enemy is easy. 
There's no simple formula here because there are no guarantees. Unless, of course, you think just because you love your enemy and pray for those who willfully use you and do good to those who hate you and bless those who curse you and turn the other cheek, that they're suddenly going to turn around and treat you right and treat you well and treat you kindly. I'll tell you what might happen is they might hit that other cheek if you turn it to them. Sometimes to love like Jesus will get you crucified like Jesus. There's no easy answers here. There's no easy answers here. This is what Jesus is calling us to do is impossibly difficult. It's profoundly difficult. So how do we, how do we gain control? How do we escape our reality? How do we escape our vulnerability, rather? How do we gain control? How do we escape our vulnerability? Well, Jesus says you can't and you don't. Jesus says you can't and you don't. In fact, Jesus encouraged us to lean into our vulnerability. He says, lean into your vulnerability. You see, to love your enemies, now forget it. <laughs> That's ridiculous, right? That's crazy talk. To love your friends, how about we start there? To love your friends like this. To love your neighbors like this. To love your husband or your wife like this. It doesn't make you less vulnerable, it makes you more vulnerable. But Jesus says that's okay, because the idea here is not to be gain control and escape your vulnerability. The idea is not to gain control, but to be controlled by your Father in heaven, to be controlled by the image of God. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Reflect the image of God to your husband or to your wife. Reflect the image of God and all his goodness and all his love to your, to your neighbor. Reflect the image of God ultimately in all his goodness and all his love and all his compassion even to your enemy. Jesus says it's okay. You're not meant to escape your vulnerability and gain control. What we're meant to do is be controlled, be controlled by the story that Jesus is telling and to tell that story with all the days that God has given us under the sun. And those days are running out. So let's pray. Jesus, we repent this morning of the times where we have tried to take control with all the many different sick and twisted ways that we do that. Our fear to escape our vulnerability. We, we turn to you. We ask for forgiveness. And we ask that you would grant us repentance that our hearts would be turned back to you. Father, we pray that we would follow Jesus in a warped world where sometimes godly character and kindness and love don't count. We pray that we would follow Jesus in reflecting your image to our friends, to our family, to our enemies until your kingdom comes in all its fullness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.